Good morning, church. Welcome here this morning. It's my privilege to be with you all and my privilege to preach God's word again, God's life-changing word again today. Before we get started, let's have a word of prayer together. Let's bow our heads as we commit this time to the Lord. Lord, we come to you today in the magnificent name of Jesus, and we exalt your name above everything and above everyone else. We commit this time to you, and as we now open up your word, we thank you for your revelation to us, and we pray that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church today. Speak to us, Lord, corporately and individually, and may we incline our hearts to receive what you would say to us through these letters. Show us what you want from your church in this day and age so that we can truly be identified as Christ followers and reflect your glory in every area that we may have influence. Lord, we want to say this morning that we love you and we praise your holy name in this place. And all God's people said, amen, amen and amen. Church, it's so good to be with you this morning. Today we continue with our series, Revealing Jesus. We move into Revelation chapter 3 this morning. And while you're turning there in your Bibles, I'm going to take the opportunity to quickly revisit the timeline of events for the book of Revelation. You could put that first image up for us. Thank you. Now, as you'll see, there's a lot of detail going on there, and it may look a bit confusing at this point, but we are going to go through this step by step, and all you have to concern yourself with now is that small little section right in the beginning of the timeline of events, which is called the church age. That's where we've been focusing up to this point of our study in this book, and this is that section of scripture, particularly in chapters 2 and 3, where Jesus dictates seven letters to seven different churches. You'll notice is that if you have a red-letter Bible, that in chapters 2 and 3, everything is written in red. And what does that mean? It is Jesus himself speaking here and telling the Apostle John what to write. All of these churches, if we look at the next image, were literal churches that existed in the first century and were located in Asia Minor in what is known today as Turkey. Right, it starts on that little line um, in the island of Patmos and then moves to Ephesus in a clockwise direction until it gets all the way to the last church in Laodicea. These churches received literal letters of instruction from Jesus as to the condition they found themselves in and he then guides them to either repent and change or to hold fast until he returns. Right? But in addition to that, it has spiritual application for us as well. We can learn from what these letters say because we can understand the heart of Jesus toward these churches and recognize that here we are today in the year 2023, and yet each letter ends by saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. And so even today, you and I need to have ears to hear what the Lord is saying to us through these different letters. On top of that, as we've discovered over the past few, uh, few weeks, if we look at that next image, these different letters serve to be a picture of church history. 
because each letter personifies some definitive aspect and time period of the church throughout history and even heading into the future. <clears throat> and you know, church, just a bit of a side note, the more that I study the book of Revelation, the more amazed I am by how the Lord ties all these different aspects together. How he ties the literal and the spiritual and even the historical relevance of these churches together for our benefit today is just incredible. But that's our Lord and Savior. He is just incredible. Amen? So we've covered the first four churches thus far, and today we find ourselves at the church in Sardis, which on the timeline of church history began in 1517 AD. So what we're going to do today, we're going to begin with the, the church age, the historical re uh, relevance of the church age, then we'll look at the, the literal relevance, and then we'll look at the spiritual application for us as well. Sardis, on the timeline of church history, began in 1517 AD, and it represents a very significant age of the church known as the Reformation Age or the Protestant Reformation. Now firstly, remember where we left off last week. We had a very intense look at the type of church system that is represented by the church at Thyatira. We identify the Jezebel church and the characteristics of this type of church system that is still in existence today and still encourages its members to continue to work their way into heaven and to worship idols. And this church has fallen so far from what Jesus had originally intended. Now with that in mind, and this casting your thoughts back to what was said last week, I'm going to ask you a quick question. It's a bit of a trick question, but are you glad that you don't belong to Thyatira? I would say yes, right? But would you rather belong to Sardis? No. Let me just preempt the reading of this passage here by saying that Sardis is actually worse, which might come as a massive surprise because how can anything be worse than, than the previous church, right? But let's be careful before we start condemning other churches because Sardis doesn't come out of this very good. So let's start off by reading what Jesus says to the church at Sardis and then we'll get into some of the detail and some of the application. Have you found it in your Bibles? Amen. Chapter 3 verse 1 says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour. I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. To the churches. Strong letter that, right? So from a timeline of church history, 
after 1,000 years of the Holy Roman Empire, there was a point in history where people got fed up with that type of system, with that type of dictatorship, and people tried to reform it. People recognized that what this church had become was not what God intended. And so even before the Reformation age that began in 1517, there were massive reform movements that were taking place and happening within the Roman Catholic Church. You had people like Francis of Assisi who tried to reform the lifestyle of the priesthood by starting something called the Franciscans. These were monks that came out of the Catholic type of system, and even though they were still part of the, the Roman Catholic Church, the Franciscans brought in a more humble lifestyle where they stood against the luxury living of the priests and the corruption of the priesthood. So you had these things that started happening. You had the Renaissance where education and science and, and art started to come in. And people started to recognize that some of the things that the Roman Catholic Church was teaching was, was in, in, uh, completely incorrect and just didn't make much sense. And then towards the end of the 14th century, you had people like John Wycliffe who brought in the understanding of true salvation and a better understanding of the Bible. And his followers were called the Lollards. You had people called the Waldensians in France and Spain who totally rejected the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church killed them all, including John Wycliffe and his followers, because they stood against all of this corruption that was, was happening. You see, during that period, the Roman Catholic Church made it illegal to, to read the Bible. Only the priests could read it, and they had to read it in Latin. So anyone who, trans who tried to translate it into English like John Wycliffe and later people like William Tyndale, they were killed. And you know what? This is what happens when a church becomes corrupt and assumes all power. They don't even want you to read the Bible. They want you to be told what you must believe. But we know that Jesus intended for us to read and discover the revelation in the Bible for ourselves because it was purchased at a great price. Amen? So these Reformation movements started to take place throughout Europe, and there were great men of faith that were martyred for, for making the stand. But the one that we are most familiar with is the Protestant Reformation, which started from 1517, where Martin Luther nailed his thesis to the door at Wittenberg Castle where he listed 95 things that he, that he had against the Roman Catholic Church, the problems that he had with the Roman Catholic Church. He listed 95 things that he had against their doctrine. Why? Because he read the Bible for himself. You see, what happened is that there had been a printing press invented called the Gutenberg Printing Press. And they started printing the Bible in other languages, and people were started to say, about the Roman Catholic Church, this is utter nonsense what you're teaching us. What's this about buying the finger bone of a saint to get my mom out of purgatory? Where's that in the Bible? And they realized that the word repent didn't mean do penance, which is what the priests were teaching. It actually meant change your mind and your actions. Right? And Martin Luther was gripped specifically by one verse. 
It's a verse that's in the Old Testament, but the Apostle Paul quotes it three times in his letters. And it's this one verse. Let me quote it from Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. It says, Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. And Martin Luther recognized that righteousness did not come from doing penance. It did not come from seeking absolution and paying money and buying indulgences. No, righteousness came by trusting in Jesus Christ alone. And so the Protestant Reformation started proper in 1517. And throughout this Reformation period, there were massive wars being fought. There's a lot of Protestants being killed under the reign of Queen Mary. But Britain becomes a Protestant nation when Queen Elizabeth, Elizabeth I takes over the throne. The Spanish send an armada to wipe out Britain to take it over for a Catholic Spain. And the Inquisition is in full throw. And we need to understand this as a church. You know, it's, it's good to understand where the church has come and, and how many people have fought for the truth. Because you've got to understand at this point, there's a massive battle for truth taking place. And you'll never understand European history unless you understand the battle between the Roman Catholic Church and the battle between those that wanted to reform it. Martin Luther was eventually issued with a papal bull, which is a public decree from the Pope himself, which said that if he didn't retract what he wrote in his thesis, that he would be burned at the stake. And he was prepared to die. But the German princes stood up in protest and, and protected him. A lot of it was to do with politics, and those who stood up to protest became known as the Protestants, or what we call them today, the Protestants. Right? So this kind of church came into being, it carried on, and for the, the past 500 years, each generation brings about a new set of reforms. It started initially with the Puritans bringing the King James Bible into the English language so that everyone could now read their own Bible. You had the Quakers, you had the Methodists, you had the Salvation Army and the Baptists, and all these different denominations, these different Protestant organizations bringing these doctrines that were all in the Bible originally to the forefront of people's minds. And at the beginning of the 20th century, you had the Pentecostal revival after the Welsh revival that came out of the holiness movement of the 19th century. And because people were now able to read the Bible for themselves, what happened is people started to say, hang on a minute, there's a lot in this Bible about miracles and healings and, and speaking in tongues and prophecy. How come none of that's happening anymore? And so they revived the teaching of the baptism in the Holy Spirit, right? They weren't bringing anything new in. They were just looking at what was in the, the Bible originally and saying, why are we not experiencing that today? And so that type of reform, this type of reform movement has been ongoing for 500 plus years up until today. And you know, having said all of that, you, you would think that the church inside us is, is a good church, Right? I mean, it represents the age of the church that stood against the corruption and dictatorship of the Roman Catholic Church. 
It was a time when the Bible was made available for, for people to read for themselves, and it cost many a good and faithful Christian their, their lives to make that happen. But you know what? When you read this letter to the church, God doesn't say one single good thing about it. There's not one commendation. The only thing that is slightly commendable is where Jesus says there are a few people in these churches that aren't that bad. But the church system as a whole, God says, no, it's not good. And that's really what I want us to, to look at together today. I want us to get an understanding of why this church system is a system that the Lord is so displeased with to the point of calling it a dead church. And why is this important for us, church? You know, when we go through these letters, why is it important for us? Right, because like I said before, the Lord is coming back for a pure bride. He's coming back for a spotless bride, right? And we don't ever want to get to the stage where we come to the end of our lives and the Lord says, you're a dead church or you're a dead believer, right? Or you know what, you've lost your first love. All these things that he's saying to the church, we need to recognize these things. And if we are not there, we need to bring ourselves in accordance to God's will and what he wants for his church. Amen? So, from a literal point of relevance, what do we know about the church at Sardis? The church at Sardis was an ancient city. Firstly, it was an ancient city that considered itself impregnable. It assumed that it was so beyond being captured because the city was centered on a, a high, steep acropolis jutting out from Mount Tomolus. It sat very high above everything and everyone that tried to attack the city, and so they thought that no one could ever conquer them. That is the opinion that the people at Sardis had. Right? They were overconfident. But as it turned out, they were actually conquered in the 3rd century BC by a man called Antiochus. The city was so impregnable to that point because if you tried to attack it, they would just fire these arrows down at those trying to get up these st steep hills and these steep mountains to the city. But what Antiochus did was he waited until it was night and his army made its way up at night to capture the city. You see, the soldiers at Sardis were so confident in their natural defenses of their city that they felt no need to keep a diligent watch. And that was ultimately the undoing as the enemy eventually made its way in. This overconfidence is symbolic of a church that is unprepared for the Lord's return. And that's why Jesus says to them in verse 3, Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Now, how did Jesus identify himself to this church? Let's begin there. Revelation chapter 3 verse 1 says, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. When Jesus says, he who has the seven spirits of God, what he's referring to here is more than likely a reference to the seven perfect virtues of the Holy Spirit. Let me show you what I mean. In Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2, it says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. 
Isaiah was writing prophetically about the coming Messiah and that on Jesus would come the sevenfold aspect of the Holy Spirit. The characteristics of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And that he would come in the Spirit of the Lord. He would come with the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. The seven perfect virtues of the Holy Spirit. Now, church, what this is saying is that Jesus has the fullness of the Holy Spirit in himself, and he has the Holy Spirit in fullness to give to the church. Very important for us to, un- for, uh, us to understand that. But we could ask the question, why does he say that about himself? Why does he share this, this sevenfold aspect about himself to the church? You see, Jesus understands that there are different expressions of himself and he understands that different churches can have different expressions of their own faith in Christ as well. Churches can be different, but not different like the church at Sardis. Jesus is reminding them that it's okay to have different names because God himself has lots of different names, right? He is one God, but the Bible refers to him as Yahweh or El Shaddai or Jehovah Jireh or Jehovah Rapha or Jehovah Shalom among many others. Right? You can have many different churches with many different names, but you're still part of the same church globally, right? But the problem with this church is that it had a name that it was alive, but it was dead. It had named itself something, but what it had named itself isn't what it was. It wasn't living up to its name. And Jesus is saying, look, I've got lots of names. There's nothing wrong with renaming yourself. Even Jesus renamed his disciples. But the problem that he has with them is that they're naming themselves as being alive when actually they are dead. And you know, when a church starts to do that, when it starts off on this mission to falsely promote itself, it is in serious trouble. When it's, you know, it sets off on this mission to falsely promote itself, but it doesn't live up to that false promotion, it is in serious trouble. It's like the problem of Babylon back in Genesis chapter 11. What did they try and do? It says in verse 4, And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The original Babylon system revolved around making a name for themselves, and this church at Sardis had named itself that it was a church that was alive, and God says, you're dead. And you see, one of the tricks that Satan pulls on us, and this is happening so much today, where everybody has just decided that they're going to start naming their own ministries and their own churches after what they think they want to call it. Do you know, that never used to happen in the Bible. It was just the church here. It was the church in Laodicea, the church in Ephesus, the church at Corinth. It was just the church there to worship Jesus. But you know, as time has passed and everybody in a roundabout way wants to exaggerate and promote themselves by giving themselves fancy names. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to give something a good name. right? Even Jesus himself gave his disciples better names. 
So there's nothing wrong with, you know, calling your church a name that God has given you. But the point is, just calling yourself a name doesn't change anything. Right? I can call myself a, a mighty warrior. I can call myself the most holy person that's lived in the 20th century. But am I? Right? Now, that doesn't mean that you have to sound miserable now, does it? We're not going to call ourselves averagely all right, church. You know, or you know, instead of calling ourselves frontline church, we're going to call ourselves backline church. You know, or not so bad church. <laughs> we're not going to do that. And we really believe that the Lord has given us the name frontline church for a purpose. But you know what? That name comes with a weighty responsibility. But what we're talking about here is a symptom of this age of the church to keep renaming everything. Just because that will make it sound better, but in reality, it has drifted so far from its original move of God that it doesn't even know what it stands for anymore. It was born in revival, but, but now it's dead. You see, this church started out holding on to infallible truths in the Bible. But this type of church will now go along with anything as long as it gets people into the building and doesn't offend anyone. And this is what has happened to most Protestant denominations since the Protestant Reformation. With most Protestant denominations, you don't really know what that means anymore. Let me give you an example. We know what Methodism was according to John Wesley and George Whitfield. But Methodism today can be a mixed bag of, of good churches and then other Methodist churches that are fully progressive when it comes to accepting and even promoting the lifestyles of homosexuality and LGB and the LGBTQ I'll get that one right, LGBTQ plus community in their own churches. Right? And yes, everyone is welcome in church. We know that, right? Because we're all sinners. But if a church stops addressing all manner of sins because it wants to now go along with a progressive agenda and by doing so let go of infallible truth, that church is in big trouble. Jesus says you've got a name that you're alive, but actually you're dead. And listen, this can happen with any denomination. Before we get all hoity-toity and, and snobbish about our own denomination, do we even know what Pentecostalism means anymore? Because I know some Pentecostals that I really like. I know some Pentecostal churches that I'm sure don't belong to God because they are misrepresenting and prostituting the gifts of the Spirit for their own you know, financial benefit. Right? They still call themselves a Pentecostal church. Are we living up to the name that we claim to be? And so what does Jesus say to this type of church? He says in verse 2, be watchful, watch out, and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Jesus is saying, listen, things are slowly dropping away in this church or in the life of these believers. You hold, used to hold fast to infallible truth. You used to be zealous, but you're not anymore. You're just going through the motions and you slowly things are getting worse. You're decaying. You're dying. There's no vitality. You're not getting revelation anymore. You find prayer boring. You find reading the Bible boring. You find going to church boring. And you have no intention of serving God anymore. 
but you still keep the name. Right? You haven't finished your race yet, but you've already put down your tools. Jesus says, be watchful. Watch out and strengthen the things that remain because your enemy is still trying to find a way in. He also says in verse 3, remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. The problem with this type of church is that it started out with so much great teaching, it's heard it all, it's received it all, but it's not doing anything with it anymore because the, the focus has changed. Let me say something to you this morning, church. The preaching of God's word is not for entertainment purposes. The preaching of God's word is not for entertainment purposes. It is to transform your life to live for God. Amen? This type of church is not concerned about that anymore. It started out the right way, but it's not following that way anymore. Jesus says, hold fast to what you have received and heard and repent. Which means that they need to turn around and stop what they're doing and start doing what they know they should be doing. Also there in verse 3, he says, Therefore, if you will not watch, I will, if you will not hold fast, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. When he's speaking to this type of church or to this type of believer, when he says that, says that, he means that you might think that you're impregnable, but you will wake up one morning and everything's gone and it'll be too late. And when Jesus speaks about coming as a thief in the night, it is a direct reference to the rapture and the readiness of the church. Because at the end of the church age, there is going to be the, the snatching away of the real church, the bride of Christ. Right? We know that. There is constant reference to the Lord coming like a thief in the night throughout Scripture. Jesus himself said it so many times. And listen to what the Apostle Paul says in, in Thessalonians chapter 5. He's speaking to believers, by the way. He says, Now, brothers and, and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. He says, you know very well. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. And what Jesus is saying to the church at Sardis is, you know I'm coming like a thief in the night. You've received all this teaching, so why aren't you ready? Why is your church in this condition? Why is the, the life of this believer in this church in that condition when you know I'm coming like a thief in the night? And you know what, that's really a warning for every believer to be ready, to constantly be looking inwardly so that we can be ready for the outward appearance and the return of the Lord. We need to be living as if the Lord is coming tonight when we fall asleep or when we wake up in the morning. We can't be like Sardis that became complacent and were conquered by their, their, their enemy because of their complacency. Right? We also have an enemy that doesn't sleep. So we need to be ready. We need to hold fast, church, until he returns. Amen.
So we've already spoken about the importance of living up to the name that you, you claim to be and how important that is. And I want to draw your attention now to how Jesus ad addresses the importance of a name in the closing verses. Let's go to verse 4. Jesus says, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. You see, in this church that claimed to have this name, there were actually some people in that church who did have that name. They were alive, they were full of the Spirit, they were serving God, and they were loving God. They lived up to that name even in Sardis. And church... The application for you and me is this. What name are we holding on to? If we say that name is Jesus, then are we living up to that name? Because the promise in this verse is that if we live up to that name and what it represents, it means that we have not defiled our garments and the Lord promises us, listen to this, that we will walk together with him in white garments one day. Think about that. We will walk together with him in, in white garments one day. Why? Because you are worthy of his name. Jesus closes off this letter in verses 5 and 6 by giving a great reward to those that overcome. And I'll begin to close with this. He says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Did you notice what he says there? He says, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. But then he says, I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Now that's, a, that's an interesting statement that, Right? Because we normally associate the names of the book of life being, as being written in, right? But he doesn't say, I will write his name in the book. He says, I won't take it out. Which infers that for others who do not overcome, their names will be blotted out. Why? Because that's not their name anymore, right? They claim that name, but that isn't what they are. There's a similar scripture in, in Psalm chapter 69 when when David was writing about his enemies and he was pleading with God and praying to God about his enemies, he says in verses 27 and 28, he says, Add iniquity to their iniquity and let them not come into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. I'll give you one more. Also in Genesis chapter 32, when Moses comes down from the mountain after spending a lengthy period with the Lord on the mountain, right after receiving all this instruction, he finds the children of Israel worshipping a golden calf. He is seriously angry with their behavior, but as Moses was, his heart was to show mercy towards them. So he says to the Lord in verse 31, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, he says, if you will forgive their sin. He's pleading with the Lord. But then he says, if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. 
And the Lord says to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. At church, this, this concept probably deserves the attention of an entire sermon. But church, what we need to see here is that Jesus is very serious about the way that we live our Christian lives. We can't just claim to be Christians without living and acting like Christians. Right? We can't claim the name of Jesus and, and not live up to that name. You know, men and women may be enrolled in the registers of the church as baptized, as making a profession, as having a name to live because they are now part of a church. But that name may come to be blotted out of the, the real book, the book of life, when it appears that it was just a name without any spiritual life. And you know what? It comes back to a genuine commitment to Jesus Christ that will have evidence in the way that your life has changed. In the way that there is evidence of fruit in your life. And maybe this is just my, my own personal commit, uh, conviction, but if your life and behavior is the same five or ten years after you made a commitment to Jesus, then you have to question if the commitment was genuine in the first place. Church, this is a very strong warning from the Lord to every Christian of every church age and every denomination. But you know, when I was thinking about this, the warning really pales in comparison to God's promise. Right? Because he says, to those that overcome, they will walk together with me in white robes, and their names will never ever be blotted out of the land's book of life. Never ever. And we need to keep those things in the forefront of our minds, you know, because life can get hard sometimes, right? The flesh is weak, and we want to just fall into to different things, you know? It's easy to fall into the things that will take us away from the Lord. Doing the, the wrong thing is a lot, lot easier than doing the right thing. Can I, can I get an amen to that? Right? And when things become hard, we need to think about the, these amazing promises and rewards that the Lord has for us when we, we meet Him one day. Right? Jesus says, be watchful and strengthen the things that remain because I am coming like a thief in the night. And let us be a church here at Frontline that is watchful of the enemy and ready to meet Jesus face to face at any time. Amen.